0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Eric Edelman, former ambassador to Turkey and Finland and undersecretary of everything at a certain point. Um, so welcome one and all. First topic this week is, uh, President Biden's trip. He is in Europe, even as we speak and a Pew research poll has just dropped showing that the reputation, the global reputation of the United States has rebounded, uh, with the Biden presidency. But, um, but let's start if we can. I'm going to start with you, Eric, with uh, with this trip uh, to Europe. Um, what should Biden's goal be? What do you think he should try to achieve speaking to our allies and then also to Putin?
1: Well, Mona, first of course, all thanks for uh, for having me back. Um, you know, it's hard to actually improve uh, very much on a piece that uh, Damon had about uh, Biden's mission impossible. I mean, on the one hand, uh, he has a very simple task, which is to show up in Europe and not be Donald Trump. Um, but I think he's already, to some degree, after three, four months in office, uh, already you know, gotten whatever benefit there is uh, to that. Um, and he's, he's going to have to overcome a lot of accumulating uh, new uh, sort of irritants that have cropped up uh, in the uh, relationship, the transatlantic relationship with our, our European allies. So in the first instance, he's got to get beyond uh, sort of irritants uh, like the uh, EU uh, reaching a, a, a trade or investment agreement with China without uh, you know letting the biden administration get its feet on the ground uh the fact that his administration decided to pull u.s troops out of afghanistan apparently without consulting uh with our nato allies so there have been some you know accumulating irritants that he'll have to to uh, get over um in terms of the allies i mean he what he's doing is a very very traditional kind of first trip for president which is to go see our allies um both among the industrialized uh, nations of the world in the G7 uh, and then NATO before engaging with with our adversaries and in this case Vladimir Putin. So the agenda I think with the Europeans is first of all trying to come up with a kind of common approach uh, to Russian revanchism and to uh, the various uh, things we've seen uh, Russia doing in, um, in uh, Eastern Ukraine and uh, with new, um, new nuclear weapons that the Russians are introducing into their arsenal, uh, as well, of course, as their information operations and, um, and their hosting of cyber criminals. Uh, he's also You're going speaking
0: to- Speaking of the uh, ransomware attacks that we've recently suffered.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he's also going to be trying to get our allies, a- as Trump did and as uh, President Obama did uh, before him, to, to spend more on defense. I think that's going to be a, a tricky one, uh, because despite the fact that the administration is proposing trillions do- trillions of dollars of spending, its defense budget is going to be flat to declining. So encouraging Europeans to spend more on defense might be a, a, a bit of a tough sell for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then trying to get uh, everybody kind of uh, on board on a common message with China. I mentioned the Uh, investment treaty, uh, you know, snafu with the EU. But on the other hand, the administration, I think, uh, did a very good job of orchestrating its first meeting with senior Chinese officials in Alaska when uh, in the immediate aftermath of a a pretty tough session uh, with their counterparts, uh, Secretary uh, Blinken, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan were able to orchestrate uh, both US and EU sanctions on a number of Chinese entities and individuals connected with Hong Kong uh, and and the repression of the the Uyghur minority so i think that's the agenda um you know with um with the Europeans i think with Putin you know i as a you know former 30-year diplomat i'm very nervous about this early summit with Putin uh, it's not clear that there's been much preparation or that there's much of an agenda It it will be occurring, you know, (laughs) um, on the, um, you know, anniversary of the 1961, roughly around the anniversary of the 1961 Kennedy-Khrushchev summit, which was notoriously uh, a disaster. Uh, Biden, of course, has a lot more experience than John Kennedy did when he met with Khrushchev in in June of of 1961, but uh, it's still hard to see what, you know, positive agenda there is here. I think it's more really uh, a kind of box checking exercise uh it's not a obama kind of reset um but it's also you know gonna in he's also gonna show that he's not trump uh but you know uh, when you think that the most likely thing to come out of this summit is an agreement that both countries will agree to send their ambassadors back uh to the other's capital after having um uh, in the case of the russians recalled them for consultations and in the case of the U.S. ambassador returning to the United States after it was strongly suggested to him by the Russians that he do so, uh, that's hardly, you know, the stuff of a ringing success in this summit.
0: Yeah. Linda, um, I I heard someone um, say that uh, Biden, you know, first came into office being very belligerent about Putin saying he's a killer and so forth. And, um, and then Putin uh, massed troops on the border with Ukraine. And uh, of course they are in the Eastern part of Ukraine, but um, in any event, um, he was, he was rattling his saber. And, and so some people are saying that this, this visit is really a payoff to Putin for not a payoff, but a reward to Putin for having backed down and withdrawn his troops. Does that make sense to you?
2: Well, I, I do think that uh, it's important for the two leaders to get together. And, uh, you know, uh, Eric of course is right, that it's not a reset in the form of a, uh, Obama type reset at the, at the onset of his administration. Nonetheless, you know, we had such a dramatic swing uh, in terms of US policy towards Russia uh, over the last four years and now a swing in the other direction now that I think that it is absolutely appropriate that the president uh, sit down with Putin and make clear uh, what is expected. We also, I mean, I, you can't let Putin off entirely from the kind of ransomware attacks that have been going on. Certainly, uh, he turns a blind eye to the criminal activity that is going on uh, in his jurisdiction. And clearly, if those uh, same thieves were targeting Russian companies, um, they would uh, not be free. They would be rounded up uh, and dealt with. So I do think it's important that the president makes clear that Uh, Putin himself is not totally off the hook in terms of what's going on uh, in terms of the kinds of criminal attacks that are taking place and are taking place from uh, Russian soil. So I think that's uh, terribly important. But it's also important, you know, that uh, President Biden decided to meet uh, with the allies first uh, to reestablish uh, a close relationship uh, with our allies and to attempt to put on a united front because, of course, the message that Putin got over the last four years is that the Atlantic alliance didn't mean very much uh, in terms of the, what the president of the United States thought and that it was all about a personal relationship and had very little to do uh, with U.S. strategic interests. It had to do with Trump and I would say probably with his own commercial interests. Um, so I think you know I, I think this is an important meeting. I don't know that we're going to come up with you know some communiqué afterwards that's going to have any kind of grand you know shifts in policy. I doubt it, but I also don't think that it would serve Putin well um, you know to engage in a Nikita Khrushchev banging issue on on the table sort of event either. So um, I think it's worth watching, and I am cautiously optimistic that Biden will set the right tone and take a tough stance uh, with Putin without being, you know, bellicose.
0: Bill, um, Biden uh, pledged that uh, he will purchase, the U.S. will purchase 500 million doses of the coronavirus vaccine for international distribution Um and um, so, in, so in that sense, he is joining a vaccine diplomacy battle. Uh, Russia and China are distributing vaccines around the world, uh, although the China vaccine, it was recently reported, is only about 50% effective. Um, do you think the, uh, that that's enough, 500 million doses? I'll, I'll, I'll read you in a second from The Economist magazine. They're very tough on him about this, but let me hear you first.
3: <laughs> before, <laughs> hear me for, before you hear it from the horse's mouth uh, I'll, I'll, all right i actually think it's a very good start mm-hmm. it's no more than that but you know i i think that is a big deal by global standards excluding india <laughs> right uh, right i mean india is in a class by itself at this point and it's going to take a concerted effort and a lot more than 500 million doses uh, but 500 million could do a lot of good in a lot of places, starting with Africa, but not ending there. And uh, uh, it would have been a dereliction of duty not to join this international competition. And in the long run, I think the United States is in a, is in a good position uh, to lead the effort. Uh, and it, I find it very encouraging that Pfizer was willing to deal with the administration for 500 million doses on a nonprofit basis, considering what an enormous contribution the uh, vaccine has been making to Pfizer's bottom line. So I'm not in a critical mood about that right now. Uh, Has it taken the administration a little longer than it should have to get here? Yes. But on the other hand, it's not clear to me that this kind of program could have been sustained in the court of public opinion before substantial progress had been made here at home, which it now has, thank God.
0: Uh, Damon, um, arguably, getting this vaccine uh, developed and then getting it uh, administered is one of the great American success stories of the past year. Uh, there's there's been so much else that's been dismaying, but this was this was a real feather in our cap. Um, So now I will just say what The uh, Economist magazine uh, argues. They say to get 70% of the planet's population inoculated by April, um, the IMF calculates, would cost just $50 billion. The cumulative economic benefit by 2025 in terms of increased global output would be $9 trillion. To say nothing of the lives saved and so on. and so they they take after not just Biden but the whole um, developed world, the EU and so forth saying, look, uh, this is this is a no-brainer. Why are you not doing this? Faster, please. <laughs>
4: So, well, Mona, if you're asking me if it's in uh, everyone's interest everywhere for us to try to get the entire world vaccinated, uh, I think that's probably true. Um, I mean, the statistics that the economist marshals for that are are strong. I tend to be a little skeptical in general about predictions uh, that sound incredibly precise about what doing or not doing something will result. I mean, I remember Mm -hmm. a lot of A lot of progressives were were saying around the time of the Affordable Care Act debate that uh, if we don't pass this, this many people will die. And you always think, well, okay, uh, I guess if you make a million assumptions and they all work out exactly right, then yes. But it is also true that – uh obviously the 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 economic drag presented by the pandemic in addition of course to the loss of life and uh, the medical cost all of it together uh it, it should put it enormously as as an issue of self-interest for us if we can help to make it happen uh but then also of course in, in a moral sense um, uh, we have something that can save the world, and uh, given that it's not going to bankrupt us to, to help to spread that around and, and to help the world, uh, I don't see why we wouldn't do it. It's not like it's um, – the cost is, is pretty minimal uh, when you weigh it against the benefit on, on many fronts.
0: Yeah. And, and can I just add that the the Russians, you know, typical, they, um, they promised to give Bolivia vaccines, right? But in exchange, they wanted a deal about rare earth minerals that Bolivia has and certain other things. And, you know, we have a chance here to be the generous benefactor. And boy, um, it would it would be in our interest, it seems to me to take that opportunity. Um,
4: Well, you can there see uh, why Trump admires the man so much because uh, (laughs) that's, that's the, the mob boss mentality of governance right there. Oh, you want me to help you out? What you got for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was, and I'm sure that that would have been Trump's uh, attitude. Absolutely. What, we're going to give this away for nothing. You got to be crazy. Um, (laughs) By the way, Putin, the troll also, I mean, this was really a a wonderful move this week. He, he criticized the U S for violating the human rights of the January six rioters. Did did everybody catch that little move? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, the guy has, he has, uh, chutzpah as, as we say in Russian. Um, anyway, um, okay. One last thing, one last question for you, Eric, and it's about tariffs. This is the one thing that I am just tearing my hair out. One of the things about the Biden administration. I mean, look, uh, at least he should be willing to remove the tariffs on our allies that Trump imposed. Right. I mean, leave China out of it for now. But on our allies.
1: I, I agree. And as a, you know, I wouldn't say prodigious, but, you know, large consumer of uh, European wines and cheeses. I <laughs> Particularly aggrieved about this tax that Donald Trump levied on me, and um, yeah, is now being continued by the Biden administration. Look, I think the Biden administration, I do think, is beginning to try to unwind some of the uh, the tariffs uh, in in Europe. I think wisely, because they are prioritizing. I think pressuring China on economic issues and abiding by the very sensible law of the conservation of enemies. Um, they- <laughs> they i think realize that having uh, europe on our side uh, against uh, chinese economic predatory statecraft is very important particularly in an era when more and more europeans are are becoming aware of this and more open to the argument i still think you know biden will have a long way to go on that and they probably should have you know been after this a little sooner um, but i think it also testifies to the degree that the delayed ascertainment of the election um, and the failure to fill a lot of, you know, presidentially appointed positions has slowed the administration down on a number of fronts across the board and national security policies.
0: Yeah. Well, I would just add one other thing, uh, public service announcement that, uh, if you're also concerned about inflation, as we have reason to be, uh, one good way to fight inflation is to reduce tariffs. All right. Um, let us move now to the ProPublica story that dropped this week, um, about the richest Americans and their taxes. Um, I'm going to start with you this time, Damon. Uh, the um, first of all, uh, before we get to the to the substance of whether we have the correct tax system and whether ProPublica revealed uh, a, a scandal, uh, let me ask you about the journalistic ethics here. They got these private. Um, Uh, private tax return, private tax return information somehow, perhaps from somebody within the IRS, though it's a federal crime for an IRS employee to release this data. But, um, and they went ahead and published it with the names attached. Um, What do you make of that? They say, well, there's a very strong public interest in having this information. Therefore it was, it was worth doing. What do you think?
4: Uh I, I don't think it's good at all. Uh I mean I do have opinions about the substance that was revealed in this unethical way, which maybe we can get to, but yeah. uh but I do uh I see this as uh, an example of kind of the, the fraying of our of our civic life in a lot of ways. It's as if uh, you know, we spent four years or more fighting about Trump's tax returns and clamoring for, hoping for people to sort of break the law and reveal his taxes for the sake of the public interest. And it's as if ProPublica is now saying, "Well, really, all all billionaires are pretty much like Trump, and so if we can get that information on them, even if technically it's illegal, there's a public interest in revealing it to the public." Uh, I don't. I I don't think journalism should operate that way. It's 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 a kind of muckraking style of journalism that I associate with more marginal figures uh, than I would with uh, a mainstream news site like ProPublica. But then, of course, you know they always have inclined in the direction a little bit of a more publicly uh, engaged um, form of muckraking. <laughs> So they've kind of taken a few more steps in that more radical direction, and I don't think it's great uh, for uh, for journalism to do that because it makes it seem as if there's a kind of journalistic stake in tearing down powerful people in a way that goes beyond uh, lawbreaking, because there's no allegation in any of this that any of the people broke any law. They, they, it's, in a kind of, it's using the information that was revealed in order to change existing law and make it uh, far more strict and, and uh, take a much bigger bite out of people's uh, wealth, which, again, is a separate question about whether we should do that. But journalistically, I don't think it was a very good idea.
0: So, um, Bill, one of the things that ProPublica said uh, as justification, it said that uh, this demolishes the cornerstone myth of the American tax system that everyone pays their fair share and the richest Americans pay the most and they go on the IRS records show that the wealthiest can perfectly legally pay income taxes that are only a tiny fraction of the hundreds of millions if not billions their fortunes grow every year now bill i submit to you this is this is misleading because it makes it sound as if the rich are getting away with something that other people cannot get away with and in point of fact it the the, the law is that you know if you're say a homeowner and your house increases in value from one year to the next. You, you know, on I suppose, in an abstract sense, have more net worth, but you're not taxed on that because it's not income. Uh, if you sell your house, then you're taxed. Um, so, is ProPublica misrepresenting reality here?
3: Uh, well, it's it's trying to change reality, <laughs> uh, which is related, but but distinct, I believe. Uh, in effect, ProPublica is trying to make people angry that we don't have a wealth tax in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, a number of people have suggested in recent years that we ought to have a wealth tax in this country. Uh, I note with interest that European countries that were gung-ho for it 20 years ago have largely walked away from it for administrative reasons. A lot of tax experts I trust say that a wealth tax would be an administrative nightmare and would turn out to be the IRS's Vietnam. Uh, Do the wealthy pay their quote-unquote fair share? Uh, We could have a robust argument about that. I will say that this little detail you know, that Jeff Bezos claimed $4,000 in tax credits for his children uh, doesn't sit very well (laughs) with me intuitively. You know, if there's anybody who shouldn't be getting tax credits, it's Jeff Bezos. But of course, uh, he claimed them according to law. You know, as Michael Kinsley once said, the real scandal is what's legal. Uh, So we, you know, uh, I think we do need to have A robust debate about our tax system and the Biden proposals have helped to trigger that debate. But if ProPublica is trying to suggest that somehow there is lawbreaking going on, then it's way off base.
0: Um, Linda, to follow up on Bill's point, um, so in, uh, 1990, 12 countries in Europe had a wealth tax. Today, there are only four. Um, and what they found is that they are very expensive to administer. They're hard on people with lots of assets, but very little cash. They distort saving and investment decisions and they push the rich and their money out of the taxing country. So, um, so there we are. France estimated that uh, its wealth tax led to an exodus of 42,000 millionaires between 2000 and 2012. Uh, so so there's that. But then let me also pose uh, present a few data. Um, the top was according to the National Taxpayers Union, the top 1% in 2018, the top 1% of taxpayers, that is those earning more than $540,000 annually per individual, um, uh, paid 40%, more than 40% of all federal income taxes. The top 5%, uh, those making more than $217,000 roughly, uh, paid 60% of the, of the income taxes. The bottom 50%, um, paid 2.94% of all income taxes. So, you know, that, whatever, you know, the the billionaires do have it good, you know, no question about it. But it isn't as if our system is skewed in the way that ProPublica is saying. It it is true that the rich pay a disproportionate share of the the federal taxes. Uh,
2: Let me just say this, uh, Mona, a couple of things. First, there is a scandal here. And I think the scandal is that Private individuals have had their most private financial information stolen uh, from the federal government and handed over to a publication which decided not just to publish the data, but to attach names to it. I think that's a scandal. I think it's outrageous. And I frankly hope that it ends up with um, prosecution of the people who, in fact, have broken the law. That aside, um, I I am scandalized by that and and, uh, really profoundly so. Because, you know, it happened to Jeff Bezos today. What if it happened to you or me tomorrow? I mean, it's just, it's wrong. But there are some policy questions here. And the United States, as you rightly say, has never had a wealth tax. Uh, Elizabeth Warren ran for president of the United States, tried to, you know, get the nomination of the Democratic Party proposing a wealth tax. She didn't do very well. It wasn't all that popular. We have had a tradition in the United States of not necessarily envying the rich or wishing them ill, but rather uh, trying to, you know, assume that all of us would have a chance of someday being rich ourselves. So um, we don't have a wealth tax. Now, there were a few things I think, you know, Bill pointed out the tax uh, credit um, you know, when, when you do your taxes, you do make a choice. You don't have to take every single uh, deduction that you make. Um, and obviously, Jeff Bezos was in a position that he did not have to claim that tax credit, even if, um, according to the uh, you know, return that he filed, he, um, he was entitled to it. But secondly, there were some things that I did think showed some loopholes. I am against the idea of taxing assets because it would not just harm the Jeff Bezos and, and other uh, multi-billionaires in the world. It would, ha- it would harm a lot of people who have their uh, retirement funds uh, in pension funds. You know, if you look at uh, someone's net worth um, based on what they have in the IRA or if you're, for example, you know, hope to make some of your retirement income in real estate... Uh, You may have big assets on the books, but it is not something that you can enjoy day to day. But there is a loophole that I found troubling in this that I think Congress uh, perhaps should look at trying to to close. And that is, as long as you're not touching your assets um, and therefore they're not subject to capital gains, um, it's fine with me that, that they are not taxed as assets. But if you borrow against those assets and take that, Uh, money, uh, you know, in the present term, you're also not taxed on it because uh, it's borrowed money. It's not, um, it's not money that, um, you know, that you are earning. Perhaps, you know, they ought to look at whether or not there are some changes that can be made. If you were uh, taking money against assets um, that will, uh, you know, not be sold, but are using that an- income day to day. Perhaps that ought to be taxed. Now that would again not just affect the rich. There are a lot of people, uh, particularly during uh, the housing boom, who took money uh, that they had in equity in their home and used that to live on. Uh, presumably, um, if they were taxed on it now, you'd have to figure out a way so that they not be taxed on it later. Uh, when that property was disposed of. But there may be some minor things that we can uh, learn from this exercise, but we could have learned it just as well without attaching names to it. Uh, And I think that
0: was just 100% wrong. Hmm. Okay. Both Bill and Damon want back in on this. Eric, I'll come to you shortly. Bill. Well, uh, this is in the beg to differ mode. Mm -hmm. Mona. Uh, I, I have a feeling hit- I'd be hearing from you.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, you know, just as, you know, uh, as a matter of you know, strict accuracy as opposed to well-intentioned statistics that can be misleading, the fundamental question is not what share of federal income taxes the rich pay, right? The fundamental question, that's the wrong denominator the right denominator is the taxes they pay relative to their taxable income, what that effective tax rate is. Uh, And because you could easily have the top 1% with 60% of the national income paying 40% of the federal income tax. And if you just focus on the 40% and not the 60%, uh, you're going to mislead yourself and others.
0: Okay, I, I beg to differ with you because I've also looked at those data which I don't have right in front of me, but um, even as a uh, as a percentage of the national wealth, it, it still works out that the, that the rich are paying what I regard as more than their fair share or, or their fair share or lots, let's put it that way. Okay, Damon.
4: Uh, well, on that specific issue, I would go back to the... Um, um, Ethically questionable for a public piece, which actually does try to to put some numbers on this by coming up with like a, a real tax rate for people like Jeff Bezos, and shows that that as a, a percentage of uh, their wealth, they're paying a pretty small percentage of their own. Now, because they have so much, if Jeff Bezos pays a two percent effective tax rate, that's still a huge chunk of change, and is going to dwarf me let alone people who make a lot less than I do. So that's important. The other thing I wanted to say, just to go back to something, Mona, you said uh, a few cycles ago about how if you own a home, uh, you don't actually pay a wealth tax on it until you sell the home in the form of capital gains, which, of course, you don't pay if you use it as a down payment on a new house. But assuming you do, there is, don't forget, property tax, which is a form of a wealth tax that is paid by average Americans, middle class Americans. And if the value of your house goes up, usually there's a lag for a while because your your municipality needs to kind of reassess Reassess, your your property and and raise it. And that takes a few years usually. Um, But it is true that there is a kind of rough and ready wealth tax in that respect on people's Uh, investments as a home. So in that respect, we're already paying, average Americans are paying a kind of wealth tax. And so I realize it's very difficult to try to come up with a way of doing this efficiently to like how exactly how do you establish the market value of all the assets that a very wealthy person has? Yeah, that would probably be a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, On the other hand, uh, computers are really powerful. <laughs> and they can do a lot of legwork on these kinds of things. And all my final point will be to say that. Um, uh, it- Thomas Piketty, the French lefty uh, economist, actually has a proposal that would uh, try to impose a wealth tax at a rate of 0.1% for those who have half the amount of median wealth, escalating to 10% at 100 times the average wealth, and then to 90% for those who have 10,000 times the average wealth. I leave that uh, floating out there as food for thought.
0: <laughs> doesn't he Doesn't he suggest that it would be an international tax?
4: Well, that's the only way it could work, because yeah, I forget well, who said it. Cause, that. cause, <laughs> because and that's, why, in a way, why, when it comes to corporate taxes, Biden is going around the world saying to everybody, hey, we want America to jack up our corporate tax rate again, but we can only do that if everybody else jacks it up with us so that they don't leave our country and go to yours. And everyone yeah. else is look, turning back to him and saying, what are you, crazy? Why would we do that? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a problem,
0: <laughs> right? All right. Well, I I um, would like to point out a different problem with our tax code that has always uh, bothered me, and that is, um, and it does involve people with means, uh, but not not billionaires per se, but just everybody who itemizes. Um, our current tax system relies very much on people's. Um, honesty. (laughs) And so people can list all kinds of things as business expenses and deductions that really aren't. And the IRS does not have enough auditors to um, keep everybody honest. And so I've seen throughout my life, many people who cheerfully and even gleefully talk about deducting things like family vacations and so forth, which are clearly wrong and taking advantage of the system. And it really Bothers me, um, and so um, and so. Eric, I will turn to you on this. I, I, um, you know, when I when I took tax in law school, I thought it was going to be the dullest course. It turned out to be really interesting because tax law is entirely public policy. It's all judgments about what we want to encourage and what we want to discourage. But a lot of people think. You know, all this encouraging and discouraging is probably a bad idea and we should collect taxes by a flat tax that is, you know, if 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 Jeff Bezos pays 15% and I pay 15%, we're talking about vastly different amounts of money, but it would simplify things and you wouldn't have the state getting in there and saying we want to encourage this, and we want to discourage that, and you would not have this phenomenon of people saying, "I'm I'm writing off ten thousand dollars for my, you know, my son and his girlfriend to go, you know, to Bermuda."
1: Mona, you must have been reading my mind, um, <laughs> because you know I venture into this uh, arena, you know, with great trepidation, because uh, you know you, Linda, and Bill, and Damon have all forgotten more about this than I've ever known as a foreign policy hand. But I, I, as I saw the ProPublica article, and I totally agree with uh, you know uh, everybody's uh, concerns about uh, the ethics of this from a journalism point of view, um, and there's some methodological issues with how uh, they were calculating the tax rate that Damon was talking about. The thing that did struck me was, um, you know, this uh, is a little bit like um, you know Claude Rains turning to Humphrey Bogart. Um, in Casablanca and saying, gambling in the casino, I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. I mean, Americans have had a sense that, you know, the, uh, the uber wealthy, uh, you know, have the advantage of, you know, armies of tax lawyers to take advantage of all the elements in the code. And what struck me when I read the article was uh, why the Democrats don't, you know, turn the tables on the, you know, the faux populist Republicans like Jim Banks and others who want to make the Republicans the working class party by saying, you know, Donald Trump was right; the system really is rigged in favor of the rich, and we really need to have what Bill Galston was talking about—a real debate about tax policy, not just an orgy of tax cutting, which is what we've had since 1986. And the the one thing that does, um, you know, make sense to me would be a flat or a step tax of some kind uh, that got the government out of you know, uh, channeling um, revenues uh, hither, thither, and yon on the basis of special interests uh, that can get a majority in Congress. Um, By the way, since we've been talking about Putin, uh, one of the very few good things Putin did for Russia early in his tenure was institute a a flat tax or a step tax, actually, uh, which worked quite well in a country where most people weren't paying taxes at all. Suddenly, everyone started paying taxes, uh, and it helped strengthen the Russian state, which had been incredibly weakened uh, uh, in the aftermath of the collapse of communism. So, I, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see whether the Democrats can turn this to some advantage politically. Uh, if they were, uh, if they were good, they certainly would be able to. I think.
0: Okay. Um, speaking of Democrats, um, they had um, they had a very uh, strong response to a. Uh, position taken by Senator Joe Manchin um, who uh, wrote an op-ed last weekend saying that he would not support the For the People Act. And uh, so moveon.org wrote a piece saying expel Joe Manchin from the Democratic Party. Um, there is talk about having a progressive challenger to him in the primary in uh, West Virginia. Um, and, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez said uh, she, she impugned Manchin's motives because she said HR1, that was the For the People Act, stands up against lobbyists and dark money. I would reckon to think that this is probably just as much a part of Joe Manchin's calculus as anything else because when it comes to this bipartisan argument, I don't buy it. Um, so, Bill Galston. Uh, are the uh, are the Democrats handling their Joe Manchin problem very well? You can't, uh, you know, you can't
3: do without him. So you better not demonize him. Uh, should also recognize that, uh, you know, he is a man of pretty sturdy convictions, uh, and he genu- he genuinely believes. Uh, that there are substantial portions of the for the people act that simply will not pass constitutional muster i think it'd be the better part of wisdom uh, for the democratic party to sit down with him and with other skeptics within the party uh, he's you know he's standing up and taking all the arrows for them but there are a lot of senate democrats who have quieter doubts about either the political wisdom or the constitutional appropriateness of particular pieces of H.R. 1, sit down and talk through where the areas of agreement are, try to widen them to the greatest extent possible, and then go go with a bill that at least has the unanimous support of Senate Democrats. That's not going to help them pass the bill, but it will spare Mr. Schumer the embarrassment of putting up a bill Uh, that won't even get unanimity among Senate Democrats and may smoke out some of the quiet doubters.
0: Linda, I'm beginning to get the suspicion that the Democratic leadership in the House and Senate is not very nimble.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You think? (laughs) Uh, look, they, they do have a problem um, on their hands. Um, there is uh, a lot of diversity within the Democratic Party. They do have their what I consider extreme left wing um, represented by people like uh, Alexandria ocasio uh Cortez, but, they're, um, but they also have the Joe Manchins. And if the Democratic Party wants to hold on to power, if they want to grow, if they want to continue to be reelected, they are far better off moving towards the Joe Manchin wing of the party than they are uh, toward AOC and her wing. Um, there are people, uh, I suspect, like you and me, that if we lived in West Virginia, um, and we're confronted with a a, a not so good Republican candidate, uh, particularly one who had Trumpist leanings, and a Joe Manchin, we'd easily vote for a Joe Manchin. Um, And so I think... um, I think the party has got to learn to deal with this. But I also think, you know, uh, Christopher Caldwell had a, uh, a piece in the New York Times, I think it was today. Senator Joe Manchin has a point. And it was about the specifics of uh, the voting bill, the HR 1, which we've discussed several times on this show. It is too broad, it encompasses a lot more than simply voting. And even some of the prescriptions on voting itself. I'm not sure that they are necessary, just as the Republicans are trying to change voting laws in a way that are unnecessary because there wasn't fraud uh, during the last election uh, to speak of. So too, I think the Republicans are using this particular moment to try to enact a kind of sweeping change in our voting. You mean the Democrats? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the Democrats. The Democrats are trying to use uh, what's going on as a, a way to have sweeping change in our laws with respect to voting which have traditionally been state by state uh, with different states differing in their approach. Um, and when you look at the last election, even the last couple of elections, the fact is you've got a lot of people who are voting in the United States more than, you know, I, I think I read the statistics that there were more people who turned out in the last election, a larger percentage um, of the voting population in the last election than in any election since uh, the early 1900s. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. That, that's something we ought to be patting ourselves on the back. Now, are some of these changes as a result of the fact we made it much easier for people to vote uh, absentee? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, you know, as somebody uh, who has always enjoyed in the past showing up to the polling place, casting my vote, it always felt like my civic duty. It was so. A way to sort of exhibit my patriotism was to show up on election day, stand in line, as I've done many, many times, um, including in in 2012 when I was uh, voting in Arlington, Virginia, and there were long lines. And that election went uh, for Barack Obama, uh, but equally doing it in, in elections when the election went for the Republicans. So I, I just think... There is much ado being made about Joe Manchin's um, skepticism and apostasy on the voting issue. But my suspicion is that there are more Americans who would agree with Joe Manchin than there are that would agree uh, with those who want to basically
0: uh, punish him in some way. Damon, um, Joe Manchin is able to hold on to a seat in a state as a Democrat in a state that Trump won by something like 5,000 points, Um, the notion- It was
4: 40, but that's close. (laughs) Okay.
0: Yeah. So the notion that the Democrats are going to primary him with a progressive, are they out of their ever-loving minds? I mean, they are so lucky to have Joe Manchin, frankly, in in, from that state and if he for whatever reason chooses not to run again um, they're almost certainly uh, gonna lose gonna lose that seat to a Republican so um of course they,
4: I, it's absurd like uh, who, yeah. what was the publication that you said was on or yeah, move on dog move on right out of the Senate majority I mean yeah. like they, they want to kick him out of the party okay uh, instantly <laughs> the the Senate is now controlled by Mitch McConnell instantly yep. I mean, what are they thinking? I, I mean, the, the level of uh, kind of political malfeasance behind some of this stuff, it's just really kind of childish acting out. They're just pissed off and frustrated, mm-hmm. and so they want to get rid of him. But if you think about it with a clear head for 10 seconds, you realize, oh, if we primary Joe Manchin, we are – absolutely guaranteed to get a Republican senator in his seat in West Virginia and then the battle to hold on to or recapture uh, the, the Senate for the Democrats becomes that much more difficult. And uh, I, so I, I sort of am at a loss about about that level of um, idiocy when it comes to thinking strategically and with a cool head. Um, when it comes to Manchin's vote, I actually wrote a column early in the week that went further than Chris Caldwell. I didn't just say he had a point. I said he was right. Um, And he was right because, as we've discussed on the show uh, several times, the For the People Act isn't that great. It has some decent things. Even the decent things like the attempts to address gerrymandering are, are not that fully developed and could be improved. A lot of it is out of date. All the stuff about campaign finance and trying to control for dark money, I think, is like a problem from 15 years ago. When we're in a time when, if populism is a threat, that means that small money donations are what are what we need to be thinking about. Uh, I mean, ask uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene if she's supported mainly by billionaire dark money or by lots and lots of very virulent right wing Republicans from around the country sending her 25 bucks. It's the last. Uh, so there's that. And then in, in, in addition to that, I think even though it might not work, and frankly, probably will, would not work, I think that Manchin is correct that if you're going to change the rules, it needs to be done on a bipartisan basis because you don't want to inject the kind of strong partisan skew into not policy, but the rules of the game. Once that happens, then you end up in a much more dire situation where we are guaranteed that roughly half the country is going to consider the outcome of our elections to be illegitimate. And it's not clear how you correct for that once it starts. And it's already started and Trump is responsible for the lion's share of it. But doing it this way, I think, is a mistake, Um, especially for a bill that isn't really that great, that was written as a message bill so that progressive House members could raise money and run on it precisely because it didn't pass. That's why this bill got put together. What we need is something to address the problems of the moment. And the primary one is the one uh, that that has to do with how you can prevent Republicans from taking control of vote counting out of the hands of officials and put it in the hands of partisan legislatures. That's a very difficult problem, and this bill does absolutely nothing to address it.
0: Precisely. And neither does the John Lewis bill, however good it might be in other respects. Um, I have a column up today at The Bulwark where I recommend that the Congress address itself to the Electoral Count Act, which is an execrable law, uh, horribly written and vague and confusing, um, but that uh, could be easily um, amended. And uh, would you, for for example, could um, require a supermajority in the Congress to permit a state to submit an alternate uh, slate of delegates? Other there are other possibilities there too. Again, if the if the leadership were a bit nimble here, they would be looking for ways to to do election reform that meets the moment, meets the emergency that we're in, uh, can get mansion and cinema on board, um, and uh, and that doesn't as as Damon point, points out doesn't aggravate further our our uh, crisis of confidence uh, in our electoral process. Okay, Eric.
1: I think, Mona, on an earlier um, podcast, I said that I used to be a Democrat and became a Republican, and now I'm preparing to become a Whig. Um, <laughs> and and um, I know Bill has heard me say that at least once before. That's uh, a good line. And, <laughs> Worth and, repeating. And, and part of the reason you know, I'm, I'm thinking about not being a Republican anymore is the spirit of the demand for ideological unanimity, not even conformity uh, that has animated the Republican party and it's, you know, relentless hunt to, you know, get all the rhinos out of the party. Uh, and what, what's making me crazy is that the Democrats now seem to be infected with this same thing, this hunt for dinos who they can, um, who they can force out without seeming to understand, you know, what Damon was saying, that the real threat to democracy that is real and present is Republicans taking control again before, the spirit of Trumpism has somehow been purged from the party, if that's at all possible. Um, and uh, to me, th- this is incredibly maddening. I know uh, last week you all spoke about this. Th- this seems to be a complete inability to see the threat, you know, that is right before your eyes. There's the, you know, the everyone knows about the black swans that occur that, you know, we, we can't predict because they don't occur in nature. This is a gray rhino that is bearing down uh, on people. And it it makes me crazy uh, that they're responding to it this way.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, all right. Uh, let us turn now to our highlights or lowlights of the week. Bill Galston, you first.
3: I have both a lowlight and a highlight for this week. Let me start with the lowlight. And that is the announcement of a 5% inflation rate for the month of May. Uh, There are various indications that inflation may turn out to be more structural and less transitory than the optimists in the White House and the Federal Reserve Board believe. Uh, I hope they're right, but the evidence is piling up uh, that that they're betting the farm on an assessment of inflation trends that may not simply be consistent with what is going on not only in the United States, but the world. Uh, here is my highlight, you know, tucked away in a very small article on page six of today's Wall Street Journal. And that is that the Secretary of Defense has ordered an all-hands-on-deck follow-up to a report just completed but not released inside the Pentagon about the disconnect between the Chinese military threat on the one hand and the posture and equipment of the U.S. military on the other. Uh, And this tells me that the Secretary of Defense is, is putting his full authority behind an essential strategic reassessment that I hope has a big effect on the defense defense budget and our defense posture. I was afraid when Austin was selected uh, that he might not be the right man for the job, uh, that his experience was on land. The Chinese challenge is everywhere but on land. Uh, but if he is serious about this, then I'm going to have to reassess my skepticism.
0: Okay, Linda.
2: Well, I unfortunately have a low life uh, to focus on. As you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about and working on the immigration issue. And of course, we have this crisis at our border of unaccompanied minors coming into the United States, taken into custody first by the Border Patrol and then turned over to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Well, this week, revealnews.org published a piece about One such um, young man, a 16-year-old child, who was in custody in a San Antonio migrant children's shelter. The actual incident uh, took place in 2020, but it's only come to light. And what this article, uh, which is entitled, I'm going to tase this kid, government shelters are turning refugee children over to police. What this incident shows is a 16-year-old man a uh, young man who was having a an emotional uh, breakdown. He was uh, a victim of um, gang violence in his home country and had come to the United States. And he was clearly uh, emotionally very distressed and basically refusing to go to class and in a, um, a bathroom at this facility. And the facility then called uh, the local police and the police, rather than trying to find out Really what was happening, they didn't speak um, any Spanish, the child um, didn't speak any English, Um, and when he did not immediately respond to orders in English to, uh, to turn around and face them, Uh, this officer began tasing him and tased him for 36 seconds. So it's a terrible um, incident. My fear is it's probably uh, not the only such incident. And I would commend those who are concerned about this uh, to read the article because there we have now, you know, uh, some 15,000 or so children, I believe um, in maybe it's 20,000 by now uh, in, um, custody in these ORR sites and um, to have these children who've been victims already of so much violence where they came from to now be victimized by uh, police officers uh, when they've not done anything but refused to go to class is just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. Um, the, the Border Patrol people all seem to speak Spanish. Is that right? I mean, this, this must not have been somebody with border patrol, right?
2: No, this was not, this was local police. And that was the problem. They turned them over to local police. They called local police. And this, uh, you know, 16 year old was treated as if he, you know, were a criminal. criminal. And yes, he had engaged in some bad behavior, had broken some things and, but, you know, his main problem was that he was refusing to go to class and and being verbally abusive. But that mm. does not require being tased for 36 seconds.
0: Right. Okay. Damon.
4: Well, uh, you can file my item uh, under Twitter is not the real world uh, or <laughs> the staff of the New York Times is not the real world uh, because this week, uh, Barry Weiss, who I uh, listeners may remember uh, used to work for the New York Times uh, on the op-ed page although she was not a regular columnist she mainly her job was mainly to commission pieces for the paper she was basically hounded out of her job at the Times because for some reason that I can't quite understand the uh, woke inclined staff just came to despise her and see her as everything uh, evil in the world and wanted her gone and eventually she she left now she's since then been doing a substack uh column Uh, where she often brings people in to do guest spots, and that's been pretty successful. But this week, she launched a podcast titled Honestly with Barry Weiss. She posted her very first podcast, I think, yesterday or the day before, and uh, they've just released the charts for this. And uh, in the category of society and culture, it is number one. And on the general list of the top podcasts in the country, it's number Twelve, showing. I think that this young woman has a remarkable following and a lot of admirers out there. So I guess you could say, once again, um, you know, the, who who is interested in and who likes and who hates things is very much context dependent. Uh, and uh, you know, good good luck to Barry. Uh, I listened to about half of this podcast. Uh, in the half hour before our podcast today, and it is quite good. I recommend it.
0: Excellent. Okay. Yep. Come on in, Barry. The water's fine. Actually, one <laughs> of the people that she, when she was at the New York Times, one of the writers that she commissioned for the op-ed page was me. Um, oh, very right. good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Eric.
1: Well, I have uh, a highlight and a low light. Although my highlight might be a low light, I'll leave that to you to to determine. Um, the low light uh, is that uh, Bruce Castor and Mike Vanderveen, who you will remember, uh, were the attorneys um, for the president in his second impeachment trial, who mm-hmm. argued vigorously uh, that as terrible as the violent attack on the Capitol and the insurrection uh, against the certification of the election was, the president, of course, had no responsibility and nothing to do with it, uh, have now turned up as defense attorneys for some of the insurrectionists. Who clearly were just tourists hoping to catch a stray glimpse of Mike Pence during that <laughs> historic moment when he affirmed the election of Joe Biden. Um, so that's my my low light. My my highlight is the revelation that Matt Gates, uh, when he um, was about to uh, have the story broken that he was under investigation for sex trafficking, um, reached out to Newsmax and sought to uh, test the waters for whether they would be willing to hire him as a host, uh, on Newsmax only to be turned down by Newsmax, which establishes that there is actually some bottom to what Newsmax will put on the air.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, um, I do have a highlight, which is, um, I feel duty bound to report since I have been very tough on the GOP, um, and I still am. Uh, I think it's uh, a danger to our republic at the in its current iteration. Nevertheless, it seems worth mentioning that um, in Oregon, the state GOP is in the process of attempting to expel GOP representative Mike Neerman uh, because the um the Oregon state house had an episode, not unlike January 6th, they had theirs back in December where they were raided by a bunch of yahoos uh, carrying weapons and, and Trump signs and whatnot and uh, attempting to disrupt the activities of the um, legislature. Um, And uh, he, he uh, opened the door and let them in. Um, So all 22 of his fellow Republicans are calling upon him to resign his seat. So that's good. Um, and one other little green shoot um, is that in the gubernatorial primary in the state of New Jersey, uh, the Republican primary uh, was won by a guy named Jack uh, Chitarelli. I think is how it's pronounced, um, he was the least trumpy of all of the candidates um, and uh, in fact he was asked whether he supported trump in the the one debate and he said well i supported his policies whereas his opponents were um, full-on trump enthusiasts so he squeaked out a victory the the trump followers got about 47 percent or something of the of the vote but but he got the majority. And so he's going to be the GOP nominee. Um, You may say, well, that's really not so great. He just squeaked by, but you know, every little bit helps. And with that, um, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank Eric Edelman for being with us this week. Always a joy. And uh, we will return next week as every week.